Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called super stocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. Welcome everyone to our podcast. Some of you may know about The Molly's Fool. It was started by David Gartner. David is known as one of the best stock picker in America. Some of his picks include Amazon, Netflix, and Shopify. So one of his common phrases I like the most is make your portfolio reflect the best version of your future. So my guest today was part of the early team of the Molly Fool in Singapore. He has educated over thousands of investors through his precise writings over the past few years. So my guest has appeared on various media platforms such as Asia One and Singapore's local newspaper, The Straits Times. So we have known each other for quite some time. And without further introduction, I'm pleased to introduce to you, Sajin. Hello, everybody. Thanks, Kelvin, for having me. Really excited to uh, begin the conversation. Yeah, man, I'm also very excited. So, hey, Sajin, I just want to let you know that it's really nice. Glad that you took some time out of your schedule to be with us. I, I think your story is very interesting. I, I read about your story on newspaper. And I think in Singapore, the country where both of us live, you're sort of like a household blogger right now because I do often see your posts being shared by my friends on WhatsApp groups as well. So maybe let's start off with a few things. Um, could you share with us your background? Although I know I kind of gave a teaser in the beginning, how do you get to where you are today and what really got you started into investing? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but and first of all, it's really my pleasure to, to be here. Thank you for inviting me again. Yeah, so my journey to investing, I think it all started from, um, I will go back to when I was like 17 or 18 years old. I was in junior college taking a course in economics. And I realized that a lot of the main theories that were being taught uh, about economics uh, didn't to reflect reality. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I really wanted to do was to uh, find people who work with money. And I chanced upon, or rather I discovered uh, Warren Buffett and his uh, circle of peers and mentors and friends and so on. And I started to read the things that they wrote uh, about their work. And so one of the very first few books that I read was Philip Fisher's Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And that really gave, that really made a, that had a very profound uh, influence on how I think about finance and investing. And it also got me really interested because I could see that investing was in a way like trying to solve an intellectual puzzle. You know, you're taking these different bits and pieces of information and you're piecing them together to come up with a, a version or, or rather a vision of how you think the future might unfold, right? And, and then you act upon it. So I thought that it was a really interesting activity. So I was, so ever since I discovered uh, stock market investing, I was, I've just been like really interested in it. 
So that was in junior college, right? When I first discovered investing. And then during my university days, or rather when I was choosing my course for university, I was debating between an engineering course or a, some a business-related course. So I actually had um, offers for, uh, for an accounting course in SMU, but I decided to take up engineering instead because I'm also interested in like the math and science. So engineering was also a pretty good fit for me. But I thought it would be a lot easier to learn about investing on my own as compared to learning about uh, engineering or the sciences on my own. So I decided to do an engineering degree in university and to learn about investing um, during my free time in school. So in my four years in university, I spent a lot of time learning about investing. I, I bought many books, uh, business books, investing books. I read them all. I discovered really interesting stuff online as well. Like, for example, um, there's this investor called Howard Marks who runs Oak Tree Capital, one of the world's largest distressed debt investors. Howard publishes client memos and he has done so for many years. I think going back to the early 1990s, uh, I discovered his website and I downloaded all his client memos. Uh, they are free, by the way, so it's excellent. And um, yeah, so I read them um, in chronological order. And so that was, those were one of the things that I did as a student um, when I was in NUS. And it just so happened that in my final year in university, the, the Motley Fool in the US came up with this platform called the Blogging Network. And through the Blogging Network, the Motley Fool wanted to, to get people from outside of finance to write about investing. And if they liked what they saw, they would publish the articles under your name and also pay you a small fee for your work. And I thought that as a student, that, that seemed pretty interesting. I could write about a topic that I really like and at the same time get paid for it. So I thought, why not just go for it? And... They really liked what, what I was uh, doing and they invited me and a bunch of other writers from the blogging network to their head office in Virginia uh, for a one-day conference. They did not expect to attract anybody from outside of the United States, uh, but when I was there and they realized I was from Singapore, they were really excited because during that time, that was I think it was probably July or August of 2012, um, they were in the midst of trying to bring the Motley Fool into Singapore. And so uh, when I came back, they got me in touch with the team that was doing so. And then in late 2012, I think that was probably a day or two before Christmas of uh, 2012, I got a call saying that, hey, you know, um, we're going to start the Motley Fool in Singapore officially. Um, would you like to join us? And so uh, I said yes. And so January 2013, the first, uh, the first working day of January 2013 was like the very first day that I started work uh, with the Motley Fool Singapore. And then I was there all the way to... Uh, uh, October 2019, when the company closed down. And then, um, like you briefly mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, today I'm uh, running an investment blog as well called The Good Investors, uh, together with my longtime friend, Jeremy Chia. And uh, Jeremy and myself, uh, our day job is actually managing a um, regulated investment fund that invests in stocks around the world called Compounder Fund. Yeah, so this is like a condensed version of my um, journey in the investment industry so far. Wow, what an amazing journey, you know. Uh, so Jean, as you are sharing to me, you know, I, I often look back and I reflect and I say, hey, life is often a mystery too because we never know what we might become. And I often think about, you know, life is about saying yes to good opportunities because once you kind of once you kind of think of it, of you know, what's the upside and downside? And I think the upside of you kind um kind of writing articles for Motley Fu is kind of knowing more people and opening yourself to the Motley Fu family. And the downside is nearly nothing, right? And I think maybe if you would really like to measure the downside would be just time. But I always think that time is uh, spent doing something, you know, you still learn something out of it. And that's how we can create luck, I suppose. And 
I also noticed that um, you're someone that uh, writes a lot and I often find that your writings are unique because, you know, in Singapore, we have a bundle of financial bloggers and some of the content that we read very often could be very similar content that we, you know, read from um, other websites as well. But I do think that you always offer a refreshing perspective to investments. So I just wonder, right, how did this habit of yours came about in terms of writing? And do you feel that writing have actually helped you become a better investor? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so funny story, when I was a student uh, throughout my entire education journey, I really hated writing. Um, writing compositions was one of the things that I hated the most in school. Um, but as I look back, I realized that perhaps it was because I was made to write about topics that I had no interest in. Um, whereas with investing, it is something that I have a deep passion for. And so writing about it just kind of feels natural. Um, and at the same time, I do like to read. And when I read, I, I do like to kind of um, take up or soak, soak up the writing styles of the writers that I admire. Yeah, and um, I think over, and over time, I think, uh, you know, just by being reading more, it helped me to also become a um, uh, better writer in terms of refining my, my, my writing skills. Um, and and to, to your question exactly, right, I, I do think that my writing has actually helped me become a better investor because, um, so there's this great point that I think uh, Morgan Housel, which is one of the finance writers that I really admire, he once said that um, he, he, he thinks by writing so most people think about, when most people think about writing, what they, what they have in mind is, you know, the act of, okay, I have this idea in my head and now I want to write it down. I want to translate whatever I have in my head onto paper. But, to, uh, but from Morgan's point of view, he thinks that writing is actually the process that helps him think. Because um, from, from his point of view, he, um, he sees writing as, like when you put, when you put something on to pen and paper, or rather, and today it's more like putting your fingers on your, on your, on your keyboard. Um, you, are, you are able to cr better crystallize your thoughts. And thoughts that make sense in your head, when you put them down onto paper, sometimes they may not make sense anymore. And that is a great sign of like, um, that's a great sign to tell us that, you know, the thoughts that we have in our head are actually not as good as we think they are. So I think writing has helped me become a better investor from that perspective, you know, where um, I'm able to uh, better clarify what I have in my head. And when I put it onto paper and I read it out loud, I'm like, okay, does this even make sense? Yeah. So I think from that perspective, writing has definitely helped me become a, um, uh, a better investor. Uh, but I would also say that writing is a very painful process. I think Ernest Hemingway had this phrase uh, that goes something like, um, Writing is like uh, getting bleeding or getting cut every day or something like that, and uh, yeah, I I I completely agree. It's uh, it's if, even though I've been doing this for so many years, um, it's never a, it's never pleasant. I think, <laughs> but uh, I would say it's a uh, some in a in a very interesting way, still um, enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, but I, and I think I just want to let you know that I really appreciate your writings as well. It, it have helped me uh, influence. Um, the way I think about investing and definitely I think um, as I look at the comments um, that's coming through on your blog articles you have definitely helped a lot of people so um, I often think that you know that I mean you mentioned that yeah I guess it required certain uh, discipline certain pain but you know I, I think you're adding a lot of value to people in Singapore and also globally 
And I also think that writing is like a bit of meditation, you know. It creates yes. clarity and um, so there's one thing I'm, I'm doing right now, right? Every day before I start my day, I'll think about, okay, what are the things that I need to do? And, and that allows me to be very proactive because, you know, if I don't have the clarity of things that I need to do, then anyone or any task would just, you know, take my time away and I, and I lose sight of what I need to do today, right? So, um, um, yeah, so writing is really important. Um, and I also know that you have started a fund with your partner, Jeremy, and, um, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, when it comes to investing, you know, you, you could have decided, you know, to grow your wealth um, through investing in other people's fund or sort of an index fund like Vanguard S&P 500. But it takes certain determination, maybe in your personality to know that you can be a stock picker, right? So um, I just want to think about it, right? Because do you often feel challenged, I mean, I mean being a fund manager, in this age of ETFs and robot advisor, do you believe that there are still space for you um, to thrive and really to deliver outsized performance as compared to maybe the index or robot advisors? Yeah, well, again, another really, really good question. Uh, I think that, uh, oh, by the way, and, and thank you so much for your kind words about um, the, the work that I've been uh, putting out. Um, it helps keep us uh, motivated. One of the reasons why we started uh, the investment blog is really to provide a platform for investor education. And um, yeah, we're just glad that our work is ha having a positive impact on, on people. Uh, it keeps us, uh, keeps us going. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Even if there is no feedback from people, I think uh, just the idea that, you know, we are doing, we think what we're doing is, uh, is right. And, and I think that also is a motivation to keep us going. Um, I love it. Yeah. 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 Back, back, back to your question. Um, I, I do think that it's, so it's, Investing is a really interesting, um, really, really interesting field. I mean, so Morgan Housel, again, makes, once made a very great point. Like, you know, if, if you were to, if either of us were to play tennis against uh, Rafael Nadal, for example, right? Hmm. We would lose 10 games out of 10, 100 games out of 100 games, we would mm -hmm. lose, sure, right? Because he is a professional tennis player and he has all the right techniques. He will destroy us. But investing is one of the very rare fields where you can have amateurs or even people with no skill whatsoever and that can actually beat um, the so-called professionals. And, and I think that this is because um, investing is also an activity where luck is very important, right? And, and I think we cannot um, disregard the role of luck when it comes to, comes to investing. And... Um, this, is, this is why I think it is so important for people to actually be focusing on the process um, rather than the outcome, right? So in, in, there's, so in, in investing, sometimes, you know, we can follow a good process and we can end up with good outcomes. So that, that, that's great. But some, in, in certain occasions, we can end up, we can have a really bad process and end up and still end up with a good outcome. And that is really due to luck. And this manifests in investing. And, but the thing is, I, th I think a lot of people um, do not believe that, you know, having a good process can lead to a good outcome in the investing world. I, I don't really know why that is the case. Uh, but so again, if I bring it back to tennis, right, even though um, skill is like super, it, skill is the most important determinant of the outcome in tennis, but investing, I think skill can also be, uh, can also be found. 
But a lot of people don't think that, you know, just having practice, just having the right mindset can make a difference. And I don't really know why that is the case. Um, but I, I, I believe that um, having, having, um, having the right mindset when it comes to uh, your activities in the stock market and also having the, 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 and also having like deliberate practice in terms of becoming a better investor, like the types of uh, materials that you read, the, type of, the types of thinking that you do, the types of data that you collect. I think if we are being deliberate uh, with our practice in terms of improving ourselves in these aspects, then I, I do think that we can become uh, better investors. But then again, right, like um, the, I also, I, I, I think we talked about this before. Like uh, I mentioned that investing is, so investing is more of a uh, mystery than a puzzle. And this comes from the concept that there are two main types of problems in the world, right? There are mysteries and there are puzzles. Puzzles are problems that can be solved if we, if we are able to gather more information. So um, whereas puzzles are problems, sorry, mysteries are problems that can be solved only if, you know, uh, we apply insight and imagination uh, to the problem. Having more information will not be able to help us solve mysteries, whereas it will be able to help us solve puzzles. So it's an example that I, I mentioned to you before, like if, no, if, we, if somebody were to ask, uh, where is Osama bin Laden? Let's say we go back 20 years ago and somebody asks, where is Osama bin Laden? That is a puzzle because uh, all you have to do is find the right informant and you'll be able to find out where Osama bin Laden is. But if somebody asks you what would happen to Al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden is dead, then that is a mystery because um, everybody has an opinion on, on, on what would happen to that terrorist organization and, but no one can really know for sure uh, and so that is more of like a mystery and to me I think investing is very much a mystery more so than a, um, more so than a puzzle <clears throat> and what this also means is that I think um, there will be some people who are just better suited to investing because they are through, I think through their life experiences or just through the way their brain is wired they are able to develop better insights about the way the world works as compared to uh, other people. So um, I, I wouldn't dare claim that uh, for sure that I, I'm, a, I'm a good investor. Um, and in fact, one of the questions that I always ask myself, right, even to today is like, has my, has my success in the stock market in the past been, uh, uh, been, been, uh, the result of luck or the result of skill. And I think that um, in my case, at least, uh, skill is likelier to be a more important uh, uh, determinant of my past results because I have always been sticking to a, to a process. And my process involves long-term thinking about the markets, long-term thinking about businesses, um, you know, being laser-focused on businesses and not like the economy, finding... Um, really good companies uh, uh, using a framework uh, that I have developed over time. So I've stuck with that process and it has helped me um, deliver uh, uh, pretty good results over the past 10 years or so that I've been investing in the markets. And also the past, uh, when I was with the Motley Fool, I was picking stocks, I was also using the same, same process. Um, and, and we did that and we were pretty successful with our stock picking um, with the Motley Fool Singapore's newsletters. So, um, that's, that is how I console myself, I think, uh, uh, about like, you know, uh, whether or not I have uh, the ability to continue delivering uh, alpha. That, that's really a great answer. Um, I, I feel that your answer, have, uh, definitely, you know, for the listeners out there and also for a lot of retail investors, 
you know, they definitely after your, you know, listening to your answer, I think they would have a lot of hope. And I also think back about uh, one of the chapter on One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, right? You know, there was this, I, I think what he did, right? Peter Lynch asked a group of students to pick certain stocks and, um, uh, and they were benchmarked against uh, fund managers with MBAs, right? And, and I guess you, you know the answer, right? At the end of the day, um, a group of kids actually won, you know. They yeah, outperform. I remember that story. Yeah. And I, I think to your point, sometimes, you know, I, I, you know, when I started out investing, when I had a bit of uh, results, you know, I always ask myself, you know, am I a one-trick pony, a one-hit wonder? Am I? And sometimes when I have made like, you know, in, in some rare cases whereby I made like multi-baggers on certain companies, I ask myself, am I an imposter, right? You know, because I feel like mm-hmm. I don't deserve the returns. But I guess, you know, when you are able to derive um, returns constantly over a long period, say five to eight years, then I think we should at least credit ourselves to say, hey, you know, there's some um, element of skill in, in the framework as well. And I think the point about um, robo-advisory as well, because I, I do think you're right, absolutely right on the behavioral side, because I do know of people who actually park their money with robo-advisors. And, you know, it tends, you know, robo-advisor as, as, as it as you suggest, is that, you know, you are letting someone manage your money and you're not supposed to manage yourself. But there are still people who would attempt to trade in and out robo-advisor, meaning park the money, take out the money, park the money and take out money. And sometimes- yes, that's a, that's a, sorry, that, but I, I, I want to jump in here and, and because I think that is a really great point. Um, I appeared in a webinar with Endawas before, one of uh, the robo-advisors in Singapore. Um, and I, during, in, during the webinar, I made this point that, you know, I think people have to differentiate between active investing and passive investing because active investing, I think it's more of the idea of trying to jump in and out of um, uh, the financial instruments. Whereas, and, and some people, I think, confuse the idea. They, they use passive vehicles, which are like the, what the robot advisors invest in and try to be active about it by trying to jump in and out, right? But that is very different from actually being a, uh, a passive um, investor. In fact, I would say that I am a lot more passive than a lot of passive investors because when I invest in in, in a company, I, I, I pick stocks. So as a stock picker, you can say that I'm an active investor. But the thing is, when I pick a stock, I invest and hold its shares for five to seven, even 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before I uh, liquidated my investment portfolio or rather my family's investment portfolio to so that um, we can take the capital to invest in compounder fund, um, the, there were companies in the portfolio that I've held for more than nine years, right? Wow. Yeah, and, and, and so I think that, you know, from that perspective, um, passive, a passive investor would probably, probably be a more suitable label for me, I think, rather mm-hmm. than investor, right? And, and, and so, yeah, I think to your point, people have to differentiate between active and passive investing and active and passive vehicles, right? Yeah, I, I think it's a great point because... Uh... You know, now that you mention it, I, I think sometimes uh, when investors do not know what they are doing, uh, it can be extremely counterproductive. Like, you, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, I was just looking at this um, kind of information. What they say is that, you know, in, in the stock market, right, in, in a year, there's 365 days. If you were to miss the five or 10 best days, your returns would have been uh, reduced dramatically, right? And I think... Um, yeah, I guess sometimes when it comes to investing, a lot of things that we do um, sometimes can be counterproductive, uh, counterproductive. And to that point, I also believe that investment returns are not just from 
the analytical point of view, but also you know having that right uh, behavior, and and that could be an extremely uh, huge advantage. Um, yeah, I I completely agree. In fact, I think that behavior is an even more important aspect, uh, or rather, an even more important determinant of our returns than intelligence or or um, insight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you spend a lot of time reading. You spend a lot of time writing articles to express your thoughts as well. And you know, I like to ask this question a lot because I guess life is all about having the right mental models, having the right role models, or even having the right habits. So you know, just imagine if I learn how to swim faster, then first I gotta learn how to swim. So for Bing, I I, I know you 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 mentioned that you are more like a passive investor than most passive investors, but I I do think that there's certain um um you know, reasons why you're actually delivering good results, right? And I just like to find out from you, you know, from your point of view, what are some necessary attributes to be a relatively good investor? Um, I, okay, yeah. I, so I think one of the important things is um, having patience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think investing is an activity where it's a lot easier to know the destination mm-hmm. than the time needed to reach that destination. Right, so like, I think it's a lot easier to know whether or not a company will become more valuable over time than it is to know when exactly that company's value will be realized in the stock market, right? And and so I think that having that patience, that ability to wait, I think it's um um super uh, important. And um, I think another perhaps underappreciated trait of being a relatively good investor is to have, I think, the ability to step into the shoes of, um, or no, not step into the shoes, but to, to, have, to have the ability to develop a broader, um, a, uh, broader view of the world. And, and by this, like, there, there's, this, um, there's this idea that, you know, how the stock market performs in our formative years can have a very big influence on how we view the market. So for example, if like I was an American and I was born in say the um, 1960s or so, and then when I became a, when I become a young adult, that would be like the 1980s. And the 1980s was the start of like this tremendous bull run for the US market. And so during my formative years as an investor, I'll be oh wow, this is, the stock market is like really cool, right? Uh, but if I, if I were born in another era, like an earlier era, my experience of the stock market would have been way worse. And I think that a lot of people often use their own personal experience as a way to understand the world. But I think that that is not, that will be counterproductive uh, for, for investors. I think that we, to be a, to be a good investor, you know, we, we need the ability to fully experience the world beyond our own um, personal um, encounters. Yeah. Um, because then that can give us like, you know, like, that can really help us understand how the world actually um, is like. And I, like, and I think like, for example, like a really good um, uh, uh, micro example, right? Like if you, if, if you ask most people working in a company, they would see that, you no. Know, okay, th- so there's this phenomenon that I call, you know, uh, having seen the underbelly of the beast. And the idea is that people who are too close to a particular industry, or particular company, they experience, they have seen how the sausage is made and they don't like the process. And so from their own personal encounters, they think that, wow, this is, this is really bad. I, I wouldn't want to touch it at all. But 
if they are able to take a bird's eye view, they, they will realize that, you know, like the company or the industry that they encountered can actually be, can actually still be really good. Um, but the problem is because they, they saw the whole process of making that sausage and they, they, they got disgusted by it. Um, and that's also something that I try very hard to insulate myself from. Like, you know, I, I try my, my best to not let my personal experiences uh, cloud my judgment. Yeah. So for example, um, like um, in the fund, we invested in uh, Netflix and Netflix, I've also uh, invested in it for many years. Uh, but I, I, I first invested in Netflix in 2011 uh, with my family's portfolio. Uh, but I only really started using the service in 2019. Yeah. So for many years, I, I, I did not use Netflix. I had no idea how good or bad Netflix was, but from studying, uh, from my own personal experiences, but from just studying the company, the way the company has innovated, um, the 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 growth in subscriber numbers and so on. You know that that gave me the idea that wow, okay, this is this is a company with a product that that consumers, uh, really appreciate. Yeah. So so um, I yeah I, I think one underappreciated as a trait of being of being a good investor, I think is like the ability to not let your own personal encounters or experiences cloud your judgment of the overall picture. I think that's a great point. Um. And I guess sometimes, unfortunately, in life, um, you know, sometimes we are preconditioned, right? Because um, if someone were to see people around them losing money in the stock market, like almost everyone, I, I guess, you know, he or she would assume that investing is bad and it is a gamble and there's no way uh, you could be making money in the stock market. But then on the other flip side, right? If you're always surrounded by people who are making money so easily, you would think that um, the stock market is like an ATM, right? It prints money for you. Um, and I also think that um, it's really very um, scary, you know. So it's really important to kind of know the both sides and not to be clouded by our own environment, but really going out to seek for the truth. And and I like and I like you know usually what I notice from very good investors like like you and and like some of our friends who are doing really well is that they they tend to be truth seekers, right? They are naturally very curious about about life, and they would never be told um, one side of the picture and they will never be satisfied with that, right? They would always try to see what's the, the flip side of the coin. And and so that's really important, right? I guess to be really a good investor. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and I and I think you also mentioned about um, Netflix um, and a couple of companies that you hold in your fund. Um, and and I look I was looking through your fund and I know that you, you hold mostly American names. Uh, Microsoft, Amazon, but also a few picks in Australia and Hong Kong as well. And it seems to me that you are very heavily tilted towards American names. Um, how would you think about uh, the weightage and is there a strategic thinking behind why you have weighted more towards American names? Yeah, uh, there, is, there is no strategic thinking. Like when, I, when we were building the portfolio, we did not build it with the idea that, okay, we want X percent of our assets in the U.S., and so on, uh, we did not do it that way. What we did was, um, we are very much business-focused investors, so we focus on business fundamentals. And so in, for Compounder Fund, we were really looking out for companies with certain characteristics. Uh, we call them compounders, um, and compounders to us are companies that uh, um, meet uh, six, uh, that exhibit six particular traits. Uh, the first is that they are operating in large growing markets, the second is that uh, they have strong balance sheets. 
The third is that they have uh, management teams that are, uh, that are innovative, that are capable, and that have integrity. The fourth is that they have business models that have very high levels of recurring revenues. The fifth is that they have a proven track record of growth. And the last is um, that they, their business models give, uh, give them a high likelihood of being able to generate uh, growing and strong free cash flow in the future. So companies that meet this, uh, that excel according to this particular framework, uh, we are very happy uh, to own them. And it just so happened that a lot of the companies that we know and that we come across that um, meet this criteria happen to be from the U.S. And so that was why it turned, there's like this heavy uh, weightage uh, uh, toward, the, toward U.S. companies. Yeah, it wasn't by design. It was simply because we, we, wanted to, we want to invest in really good companies. And it just so happens that like when we listed out like the things we look out for that we think would help us identify really good companies, they tend to be uh, from the U.S. Uh, stock market. All right, that's great. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I just want to let you know that when I started investing, I was investing almost three to four years in, in Singapore. And I, I wish that I've learned more about companies that's listed in USA because you are right, because I also do find a lot more um, companies that are very attractive. Um, and I often think back about it, you know, it could be their open immigration policy, it could be their population size, could be, I mean, there, there are a lot of factors, but it's just that American, uh, America as a country seems to be very prosperous. Um, and there could be some reasons uh, behind it as well. Uh, okay, so let's 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 kind of like kind of dig deeper a bit to the compounder fund, right? According to your website, I, I think you are looking to invest between thirty to fifty um, names, um, and obviously, I think um, you have a very strict criteria um, that you want for the companies that you invest into the portfolio. So, uh, could you just share with us, right? Uh, what's your investing framework? Yeah, uh, so my investment framework, uh, which, which, is, which I briefly uh, described, the six traits that I look out for in, in companies. Um, if you want, I can, I can go deeper into them. But there are also other aspects of um, Compounder Fund's investment framework. So one of the things we did was we, made, we, we kind of placed a very clear, very clear boundaries on what we can and cannot do because we believe that in investing, it's very important to know what we don't know. And what we don't know about the financial markets is actually a lot, right? And, and so um, for the fund, you know, we are not able to, we, we made it clear that we will not be like shorting stocks. We will not be using leverage. We will not be investing in derivatives. We will not do any hedging. So it's a very simple fund that just invests in stocks. And, and it is built this way because we only want to do the things that we, we, we are good at, yeah. So that is one aspect of um, like the, uh, the investment framework with, with the Compounder Fund. Um, and I think so to, 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 to kind of um, talk a little bit deeper about the, 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 the framework, right? So the, the framework, or, or, um, or rather the, the criteria that I have for the company, so it stems from the overlying view we have of the stock market, which is that the stock market is a place to buy and sell pieces of a business. And so what this means is that, um, a stock's price would ultimately be driven by the underlying business performance because if you have a business, if it does well, logically, uh, it will become more valuable over time, right? I, there's just no, I think, no logical way that a business that is able to grow its revenue, profits, and cash flows over time will become less valuable, right? And, and so the, the reverse is also true in that a, if, if a company business is not able to do well over the long run, then its stock price will also uh, fall. 
because the company's value actually shrinks over time. So we, want, we were thinking, okay, so this is the way, uh, this is our view of what the stock market actually is. And so how then can we uh, really identify good companies? And so that was how we came up, how I came up with the investment uh, uh, traits that I mentioned earlier. So um, the first one um, is about having a large and growing market. And the idea is that we, wa we want companies that have the room to grow, right? And we're also looking out for, um, mar we're also looking out for like um, markets that are powered by long-term secular growth trends. So like really um, important um, changes that are happening in society. For example, like today, you know, there's like cloud computing, digital health, um, online advertising, and so on. Um, yeah, so these are the areas that, uh, you know, we want the companies in our portfolios uh, to, to be uh, operating in. Yeah, because then that will give them like the room for growth. The second trait we look out for is uh, companies with strong balance sheets. So we typically want more cash than debt. Uh, that is like the, the simplest way for us to identify uh, a strong balance sheet. And, the, and having a strong balance sheet is important to us because of the concept of um, anti-fragility. So anti-fragility is a concept that was uh, that I first came across from Nassim Taleb, who was an who was an former options trader and the author of a few very popular books like The Black Swan, Food by Randomness, and he also of course wrote the book named Anti-Fragile, where the anti-fragile concept came from. So Nassim Taleb groups organisms and systems into three th into three categories. The first will be the fragile, where so fragile things uh, break when exposed to stress. So for example, if you have a piece of glass, you know, when you drop it it, it, it cracks and it breaks. Then there's also the robust. And robust things or, and organisms uh, remain unchanged when exposed to stress. So for example, like a, a football, if you, if you drop a football, uh, it bounces up and then you know, no harm is done to the football. When you kick the football, no harm is done to the football as well. But it doesn't change. It doesn't become stronger or it doesn't become weaker after you drop it. But then the, the third group will be the anti-fragile. And the anti-fragile are organisms and, or things that strengthen when exposed to stress. Of course, the stress that they're exposed to cannot be a, of the lethal variety. So um, a, a great example of an anti-fragile system would be like the human body. When we exercise, we place our bodies under stress, but we become stronger because of that. When we lift weights, our bones become denser. We build, on, we build more muscle, right? So that's an example of an anti-fragile um, system. And I think that companies can also be fragile or anti-fragile or, or fragile or robust or anti-fragile. And I think that can come from um, partly from the balance sheet. So when a company has a lot of debt and when the economic condition changes, the company will not be able to, the company may, able, may run into severe trouble, even if like, you know, there's only a very small contraction in economic activity or, or a small contraction in the activity in this particular industry, right? So, um, whereas if a company has a very strong balance sheet, it is able to survive without any issues, even, even if the economy runs into trouble. But not only that, right? A company with a very strong balance sheet could potentially end up stronger because of uh, um, hardships that the broader economy is facing. Why? Because if a company has a very strong balance sheet, when its competitors have to withdraw or um, marketing activities or have to cut salaries and so on, this company can actually go out there to win customers can, or can go out there to steal customers from its competitors can, and can in fact even steal talent uh, from its competitors, right? And, and so I think that 
companies with very strong balance sheets exhibit a certain degree of anti-fragility. And that means that you know, they, are potentially, they are potentially able to survive or even thrive uh, during times of uh, economic stress. Then the third trait that I uh, look out for is um, I want management teams with integrity, capability, and the ability to innovate. So um, integrity is really important because we want management teams that are able to, um, that will not uh, um, enrich themselves at the expense of shareholders, right? So let's say if a company is able to grow very well, but if the management team just keeps paying themselves very fat salaries, you know, as shareholders of the company, we cannot, um, we cannot earn anything, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, what, I, what we look out for is uh, we look out for um, how a management team is compensated. So like things like, you know, um, uh, what are the metrics that management team has to meet in order for them to be compensated? Uh, so like we, like we like to see things like um, growth in free cash flow per share, growth in uh, market share and so on. So we, like to, uh, so we look out for a matrix that we think are sensible to us um, when it comes to uh, the, the compensation structure for management team. And, and on the issue of like capability and integrity, we study a company's history a lot to understand how the management team has actually grown the business over time. And we also spend a lot of time just trying to think about the worldview that the management team has. You know, when, when, we, when we look at innovation, we are really trying to find co- companies that have a unique way of um, looking at the world. So an uh, uh, example I really like is um, um, Shopify, right, which uh, Compounder Fund owns shares in. Shopify uh, runs this um, e-commerce uh, platform uh, that en- enables uh, companies to basically start selling online very quickly and easily. So if you, if, if you go back and read Shopify's IPO prospectus, um, there's this shareholder letter that the co-founder and CEO, Toby Lutke, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but um, I'm calling him Toby Lutke. Um, uh, so Toby wrote this letter and uh, in it, he actually mentioned that you know, um, Shopify has always been about trying to deliver the most value for its customers instead of trying to extract the most value for itself. And so it has... In, it has actively reduced its short-term revenue growth to actually grow uh, the overall pie for its, uh, for its customers. And I think that you know, having this kind of um, um, thinking is actually unique. Not everybody can think this way. And when I find a management team that has a unique uh, way of looking at the world, I'm, I, I typically tend to get very excited because um, to me, I think that is a very strong hallmark of... Um, of uh, innovation. Another example that I really like uh, is uh, uh, Okta. So yep. Okta is a company we own shares of and Okta basically uh, provides um, software on, through the cloud uh, that helps uh, organizations manage the digital identities of their customers, partners, and so on. Um, so what Okta, um, when Okta was founded like more than te- around 10 years ago, uh, nobody really thought that you know, uh, digital as a, uh, digital ident- identity as a service, sorry, would actually be a robust business or multi-billion dollar uh, market opportunity. But the management team saw it because they, they could see that, you know, the world was moving towards uh, cloud computing. More and more uh, uh, apps are being used. And you know that like, um, like when, you, when you talk about large organizations, right, be, be, these companies actually use thousands of applications. And when you're but back then, when they were first when they were first uh, founded, uh, nobody really believed that this could be a viable or attractive business. Uh, but you know, the, the founding team actually uh, saw the opportunity, and and they and they have managed to build like a really um, 
in my view, at least a really incredible uh, business. So yeah, that's the third thing we look out for in, in the companies we want, which is like a really great management team. The fourth thing, um, the fourth trait we look out for is uh, companies with uh, high levels of recurring revenues. So recurring revenues are really important for us because um, you know, if, if a company has recurring revenues, then they know with a high degree of uh, certainty that you know, their existing customers will come back to them and, and they can go on to uh, focus their energies on winning new customers. Right? And, and I think that um, uh, this recurring revenue is something that a lot of investors don't pay attention to. But uh, you know, we, we really like uh, looking out for uh, this recurring revenue. So recurring revenues can come in a, in a few ways. So like, I think the most classic example would be like a subscription business. So subscriptions would, would be the best uh, types of uh, uh, recurring revenue businesses. Then sometimes it can be due to customer behavior where, you know, uh, like if you look back at how we uh, pay for products, you know, we pay with our credit cards and each time we tap our credit card with PayWave, for example, you know, we, the credit card issuer uh, and as well as the credit card network gets a small cut of the transaction. And, and, it's, a, and it's an activity that happens on and on and on. Like we, when we, each time we pay, uh, these credit card companies get a cut of our transactions, right? And and so I think that's a great example of like a recurring revenue from customer behavior. And then the last one we look out for is um like this uh, razor and blades business model where you actually sell a, a razor and then uh you but then you make the most of your money from actually selling the blades that go with the razor. So um like a company that we think has a really interesting razor and blades business model is uh, Intuitive Surgical, a US company that we own in the fund. Um, it makes surgical robots. Uh, so it sells the robots for like between $500,000 to $2.5 million each. But, with this, but each time the robot is used, um, you know, the surgeons or the hospitals have to purchase uh, uh, consumables. So these are like the surgical instruments and so on. And with intuitive surgical, these instruments, the sale of instruments make up about 70% of its total revenue. You no, know, it's a, I think it's a beautiful razor and blitz type of business model. Then the fifth trait that we look out for in the company would be um, a proven track record of growth. And the reason why we look out for that is because we think that businesses that do well tend to have a certain momentum to them. Because if, if you think about this, right, let's say if you are a really talented uh, employee in, in any industry and you are working in a company that isn't doing very well. And then you look across the street and then your competitor is doing really well. And you might think that, do I want to remain with this company that isn't doing well or do I, do I want to join the competitor that's doing well? Right? And, and so I think that you know, if a business is able to do well, that creates its own momentum um, in being able to continue doing well. So I like to look out for a strong track record of growth uh, in, in, in businesses. I think it's one of the best indicators of future business growth. And then the last uh, uh, trait we look out for would be companies uh, that with business models that we think can give us a high level of free cash flow. So um, yeah, we just, it's about us thinking through the business model and think, okay, you know, is this a type of business where free cash flow can be very lumpy or, or will free cash flow be like pretty evenly um, distributed? We tend to prefer com businesses with like even distribution of free cash flows. And also we look at things like um, the free cash flow uh, margin as well. Like, does the company have a high or low free cash flow margin? If the margin is very low, then there has to be a good reason why that's the case. Yeah. So, you know, we put all that together and companies that excel according to the investment criteria are ones that we call the co compounders. And um, these are the types of companies that we're interested to invest in. This is so amazing. You're giving us so much value in this. And I, and I think you're not realizing it because, I, you know, what I see and, and hear is that, you know, it's a very good uh, blueprint. And I think, you know, Sajin, your investors in your fund should feel very safe because you are literally <laughs> putting through thousands of listed companies through this test. And 
how many would come out and say, hey, this is great company, right? I, I don't think there are many around the world. Yeah, by, by definition, um, great companies are rare. Yeah. Super rare. And, and, you know, and on top of that, you're going to layer upon, you know, understanding management teams and, you know, it's just so uh, incredible. And, you know, as I was listening, you know, it seems to me that your framework is a, a combination of a lot of best thinkers in this world. You know, like the names of Howard Marks, Peter Lynch, Nassim Taleb, David Garnier. Um, and, and this one, there's one thing I noticed, right? Very successful people, they work in a very smart way. You know, so when I say smart, uh, what, I, what I'm saying is that um, they don't try to reinvent the wheel, right? But what they are really doing is really taking the best ideas and adding their own flavor to that and, and make that make a framework out there because I, I think it's really strange because when in school, you know, when you're copying copying people's work, you know, that is often being frowned upon. But it's very <laughs> strange, you know, like in the world that people are very successful, they they tend to copy, but you know, not, not wholesale, right? But they add their own flavor to make it work, right? So that that is yeah. amazing. It's like it's like Bruce Lee and Jeet Kune Do, right? I, I mean, I, I'm not sure how big of a martial arts fan you are, but like <laughs> Bruce Lee has this martial arts system called Jeet Kune Do and it's not, it's actually not, uh, it's not his own techniques or anything, but it's more of like a philosophy. So what Bruce Lee did was he, he studied many, many different martial arts and he, he took, okay, in say karate, this is what works in karate, in Muay Thai, this is what works. And so he combined everything that works into, into this framework that he called Jeet Kune Do. So yeah, so 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 I, I, I completely agree that like yeah, you, you made a great point. Like I think our education system very interestingly frowns upon copying, but um when we move into society, then we realize that like you know, being able to copy great ideas and but you know at the same time not at the same time implement our own thinking behind great ideas, um it it is it, it's, it's it's like a re- really uh shortcut to, to to success i think so as i look i mean i was listening very carefully to every word that you're saying just now uh, regarding your uh, philosophy and also the way you select companies and i was just looking through the, the names that you have that you mentioned like netflix like ota um, actually um I, I think a lot of investors are starting to warm up to the idea that you know loss making companies are actually good companies to invest in and and honestly speaking you know over the last two years i i think they have outperformed by a far margin you know as compared to certain companies that are profitable um so maybe from your perspective how do you think that's very risky and and you know some companies um, they don't even have uh, free cash flow right do you do how, how do you think the, the risks are you know in, in these companies yeah no great question um i so i think it's first important to think about why a company is loss-making because I think that there are cases where companies are intentionally loss-making or burning cash because they are putting in these investments up front to reap the rewards uh, later. So um, I, I give like an example like uh, uh, Netflix. Um, so Netflix is currently even today generating a significant negative free cash flow, a negative operating cash flow as well. But the reason is because of its uh, business model, where it's, it pays upfront for content that has infinite lifespan and that could potentially be monetized for a very, very long period of time. And so what I think is happening is that Netflix is you know, paying upfront for content, and, and this, but then this content can be uh, monetized at a, with much greater value than what Netflix has paid for, it, for, for them, right? And so I think it's just a um, trait of its business model where, it, it, where the company has to burn cash today 
uh, to generate much higher streams of uh, revenues and free cash flow in the future. So I think it's like just you know really important to think about the reasons why a company is uh, making a loss today or, or burning cash um, today. Yeah, like I think with like uh, software as a service companies in general, right? There's this. Um, uh, I, I think more and more people are kind of uh, realizing the, the quirks in the accounting of software as a service companies. So these are companies where, you know, they are, let's uh, just to, just to uh, illustrate with some numbers, right? Like, <clears throat> like they, may, they may spend say $2 in upfront sales and marketing and um, product development to win a customer with say lifetime value of $10, right? So like, you know, if, if somebody were to tell me I need to invest $2 to win a customer with $10 of value, uh, I would do it all the time, right? But, the, but now the problem is this customer will deliver $10 to us over a period of time. In the short run, it may only deliver first a dollar, then a dollar fifty, and so on. So for, 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 a long, for, for a short while, you know, we are actually making a loss uh, uh, with that particular customer. But over time, you know, um, this customer can actually deliver tremendous value for the organization. And so I think like in cases like these where, you know, if we can have reasonable confidence that the customers that a company is winning can have tremendous lifetime value, uh, then um, the, it may not actually be risky or, ra in, or, rather, or rather it may not actually be um, as risky as it seems on the surface. So I think that in general, um, even if a company has a good reason for making a loss or, or, or generating negative free cash flow, it's still riskier than um, companies that are profitable and generating lots of cash simply because we don't actually know uh, when uh, there's a downturn. And, uh, and there's also a chance that you know, the lifetime value of, of this loss-making company, uh, in, oh, sorry, the lifetime value of the customers of this loss-making company may not be as high as we thought it is. So I think that there's still an element of risk in there but I, I think it's less risky than people uh, um, um, imagine. Yeah. Wow, that, that's great. Yeah, because I I think when I first started out looking at some software names, initially I like I can't believe my eyes. You know why are this company? You know so you know I kind of think hey, uh, software business should be high margins, but these guys they are all losing a lot of money. And you know, frankly speaking, I I shied away from from those companies uh, when they first uh, when they first got listed. But now, you know, I, I started to think back, you know, that was such a foolish behavior because, you know, Same for me. Yeah. It took me a while to warm up to them as well. <laughs> you know, I, I thought to myself, like, instead of shying away, um, you know, what I should have done back then is really to understand the rationality, right? And really to see what were the accounting lines that actually made them um, loss-making and, you know, kind of really rationalize things because I, I do believe that, um, you know, a lot of times there could be many reasons that we may not know. So, um, I think kind of like borrowing an idea from Howard Marks, right? This is the first level of thinking, okay, they're loss-making. Second level of thinking is like what you say, they are tr tr really trying to build that unique economics and building the lifetime value. Okay, so I guess, you know, are, are there certain industries where you feel that it will generate, uh, maybe I wouldn't say the best returns, but maybe above average returns for investors in the future. And also because I was looking at your fund, you know, I think uh, you're focused in medical devices, software, strong consumer brands like A2 and super platforms like uh, Meituan Tianping. Um, is that how you see the, these companies fulfilling the needs of the future? Uh, yeah, so, you know, earlier you mentioned about uh, this phrase from David Gardner about, you know, making a portfolio reflect your best uh, version of our future. It's actually some, it's also one of the guiding lights that I have when I think about portfolio construction. 
So a lot of the companies that um that uh, we invest in are also uh, companies that I uh, that I think are trying to shape uh, are trying to shape the world uh, to a future that uh, that I that I would love to see happen. But I do. So you 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 were asking about are there any particular industries? Yeah, or industries that I think will be able to deliver the higher returns, right? So yep. I don't really think about investing in this way. Like when I when I invest in stocks, I I don't make any particular sector or industry bets. Um, for me again, right, it's about the the characteristics of individual businesses. I, so so like you know for for a very long period of time, uh, say the nineteen eighties to the two thousands, like airlines were like this horrible industry to invest in, right? Like and and. Yeah. Say that you know if he had a time machine or something, he would go back and and, and shoot the Wright brothers for for <laughs> the first man flight in Kitty Hawk, right? But you know what? In I think the thirty or twenty years that ended, say two thousand three or two thousand four, somewhere along those lines, the best performing stock in the U.S. stock market, right, was Southwest Airlines. And so I think this is a really great example of like how people should be focusing on individual companies more so than industries because you can you like you. Like literally, the best performing stock in the U.S. market came from like the worst ever um, industry, which is the airlines industry, right? So I I try not to think about investment decisions based. Uh, I I don't base my investment decisions on like trying to make sector or industry bets, uh, but I I think about them from like you know the the characteristics of good businesses because I I have a firm belief that you know a rising tide does not lift all boats. Yeah, that that would be my 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 answer to your question. Great. Um. And also maybe on a final thoughts, because I know you have your own network of investors that you constantly learn from, constantly um, you know, um, meet up as well. And very often than not, you know, I, I do get a lot of questions on COVID-19, right? And I think since you're on this podcast, I, I have to ask you this question, right? Because some really fantastic companies, like you mentioned, Southwest Airlines, right? You have, you have great numbers, you have great return on equities. But if you look at the, some of these companies, they got destroyed really badly. Even if you talk mm-hmm. about Carnival Cruise, if you look at the ROE, the growth, they are, they are there, but they got destroyed really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, how has COVID-19 really changed your investment framework? Or has it made you think differently? Like, let's say, uh, hey, balance sheets more important or let's say uh, a greater emphasis on software companies that are delivered uh, dig- uh, digitally? So I, COVID-19 actually has not changed any, uh, has not changed in any way how I approach investing. So, so one of the, the if, you, if, you, if you think through my investment framework, right, you realize that um, these are companies that have very strong balance sheets, that have very strong free cash flow, that have very good management teams. These are traits that I think can help companies overcome severe um, economic difficulties. And the reason is because I am investing with the idea that um, bad things will happen from time to time, but I don't know when. So I, I have this phrase that I use, which is that I have expectations, but I don't predict. So my expectations are, you know, recessions will bound, will, there, will, there will be recession like once every 10 years or so. I just don't know when they will happen, right? There will be, every single year, the world will be in some state of crisis but I do not know what form the crisis will take. So um, I'm trying to invest in a way where my portfolio will be able to do well um, almost no matter what is thrown um, at them, right? Uh, and, 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 what, and beyond the investment traits that I look out for, I also invest in a fairly diversified manner, like 30 to 50 companies that you mentioned earlier. And, and part of the reason for doing so is also to make sure that my portfolio will be able, will be able to 
um, withstand uh, shocks, external shocks. So COVID-19, even though um, it's, uh, it, it, no, no, I mean, obviously I did not foresee uh, COVID-19 and a lot of people did not foresee, but I think that what I did foresee was that, no, there will be a major crisis that's going to happen in this world. I, I, and, and, and a major crisis can pop up anytime. I just don't know when, right? So uh, it has, COVID-19 has also not changed um, the fundamental nature of the stock market, which is a place to buy and sell pieces of a business. So there really isn't much that COVID-19 has changed about the way I think about investing. Uh, what COVID-19 has uh, changed for me though is um, like when I assess certain industries, I think that COVID-19 may change the prospects of certain industries and certain uh, types of businesses. So these are things that I think about. But like if you talk about like my underlying um, investment framework or philosophy, then no, it doesn't really, it has, it has not had any, uh, does not make, make me, um, has not made me change anything. Okay, thanks, Sajin. So I just want to end off with this question. How can investors find more about you? Uh, how can investors find out more about me? Um, I guess they can, they can, they can read my blog <laughs> or, or they can uh, head to our fun website. <laughs> All right. So uh, do you want to like mention the website? Uh, oh yeah, it? sure, sure. Sorry. Uh, so um, the blog is The Good Investors. So the it's like the goodinvestors.sg that will be our our blog. Uh, the funds website will be uh, so my funds name is Compounder Fund. So the funds website will actually be compounderfund.com. If you key that into your internet browser, you'll be able to 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 find us. All right. So with that, um, Sajin, I just want to leave you on a, a, a something that comes from my heart. I think that your investors are incredibly blessed to have you and Jeremy as their fund manager. And I think that your, <laughs> your philosophy is something that is really uh, well scrutinized, well thought of as well. And just in this an hour or so kind of podcast, I can tell you, you have given a lot of value to our listeners. Uh, appreciate you from, for coming on and giving us time out of your busy schedule. So uh, thanks everyone for joining and we'll catch you the next time. Yeah, thank you. No, thank, uh, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to share. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Tabesor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.